Chapter Six of the Black Bag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Black Bag by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Six, Below Bridge. In silence, Mrs. Hallam turned to Kirkwood her pose in itself a question and a peremptory one. Her eyes had narrowed. Between their lashes the green showed, a thin edge like jade, cold and calculating. The firm lines of her mouth and chin had hardened. Temporarily dumb with consternation, he returned her stare as silently. "'Well, Mr. Kirkwood?' "'Mrs. Hallam,' he stammered, "'I—' She lifted her shoulders impatiently, and with a quick movement stepped back across the threshold, where she paused, a rounded arm barring the entrance, one hand grasping the doorknob as if to shut him out at any moment. "'I'm awaiting your explanation,' she said coldly. He grinned with nervousness, striving to penetrate the mental processes of this handsome Mrs. Hallam. She seemed to regard him with a suspicion which he thought inexcusable. Did she suppose he had spirited Dorothy Callender away, and then called to apprise her of the fact? Or that he was some sort of an adventurer, who had manufactured a plausible yarn to gain him access to her home? Or, harking back to her original theory, that he was an emissary from Scotland Yard? Probably she distrusted him on the latter hypothesis. The reflection left him more at ease. "'I am quite as mystified as you, Mrs. Hallam,' he began. "'Miss Callender was here, at this door, in a four-wheeler, not ten minutes ago, and—' "'Then where is she now?' "'Tell me where Callender is,' he retorted, inspired, "'and I'll try to answer you.' But her eyes were blank. "'You mean that Callender was in this house when I came, that he left, found his daughter in the cab, and drove off with her? It's clear enough.' "'You are quite mistaken,' she said thoughtfully. "'George Callender has not been here this night.' He wondered that she did not seem to resent his imputation. "'I think not.' "'Listen,' she cried, raising a warning hand, and, relaxing her vigilant attitude, moved forward once more to peer down toward the embankment. A cab had cut in from that direction and was bearing down upon them with a brisk rumble of hooves. As it approached, Kirkwood's heart, that had lightened, was weighed upon again by disappointment. It was no four-wheeler, but a hansom, and the open wings of the apron, disclosing a white triangle of linen surmounted by a glowing spot of fire, betraying the sex of the fair too plainly to allow a further hope that it might be the girl returning. At the door, the cab pulled up sharply, and a man tumbled hastily out upon the sidewalk. "'Here!' he cried throatily tossing the cabby his fare, and turned toward the pair upon the doorstep, evidently surmising that something was amiss, for he was Callender in proper person, and a sight to upset in a twinkling Kirkwood's ingeniously builded castle of suspicion. "'Mrs. Hallam!' he cried, out of breath. "'S my daughter here?' And then, catching sight of Kirkwood's countenance, "'Why, hello, Kirkwood!' He saluted him with a dubious air. The woman interrupted hastily. "'Please come in, Mr. Callender. This gentleman has been inquiring for you with an astonishing tale about your daughter.' 
Dorothy! Calendar's moonlike visage was momentarily divested of any trace of color. What of her? You had better come in, advised Mrs. Hallam brusquely. The fat adventurer hopped hurriedly across the threshold, Kirkwood following. The woman shut the door, and turned with back to it, nodding significantly at Kirkwood as her eyes met Calendar's. "'Well, well,' snapped the latter impatiently, turning to the young man. But Kirkwood was thinking quickly. For the present, he contented himself with a deliberate statement of fact. "'Miss Calendar has disappeared.' It gave him an instant's time. "'There's something damned fishy,' he told himself. "'These two are playing at cross-purposes. "'Calendar's no fool. "'He's evidently a crook, to boot. "'As for the woman, she's had her eyes open for a number of years. "'The main thing's Dorothy. "'She didn't vanish of her own initiative. "'And Mrs. Hallam knows or suspects more than she's going to tell. "'I don't think she wants Dorothy found. "'Calendar does. "'So do I. "'Ergo, I'm for Calendar.' disappeared calendar was barking at him how when where within ten minutes said kirkwood here let's get it straight with her permission i brought her here in a four-wheeler he was carefully suppressing all mention of frognall street and in calendar's glance read approval of the elision she didn't want to get out unless you were here i asked for you the maid showed me upstairs i left your daughter in the cab and, by the way, I hadn't paid the driver. That's funny, too. Perhaps six or seven minutes after I came in, Mrs. Hallam found out that Miss Calendar was with me and wanted to ask her in. When we got to the door, no cab. There you have it all. Thanks. It's plenty, said Calendar dryly. He bent his head in thought for an instant, then looked up and fixed Mrs. Hallam with an unprejudiced eye. I say he demanded explosively. There wasn't anyone here that knew, eh? Her fine eyes wavered and fell before his, and Kirkwood remarked that her underlip was curiously drawn in. I heard a man leave as Mrs. Hallam joined me, he volunteered helpfully, and with a suspicion of malice. And after that, I paid no attention at the time. It seems to me I did hear a cab in the street. Ow! interjected Calendar eyeing the woman steadfastly and employing an exclamation of combined illumination and inquiry more typically British than anything Kirkwood had yet heard from the man. For her part, the look she gave Kirkwood was sharp with fury. It was more. It was a mistake, a flaw in her diplomacy, for Calendar intercepted it. Unceremoniously, he grasped her bare arm with his fat hand. "'Tell me who it was,' he demanded in an ugly tone. She freed herself with a twist and stepped back, a higher color in her cheeks, a flash of anger in her eyes. "'Mr. Mulready,' she retorted defiantly, "'what of that?' "'I wish I was sure,' declared the fat adventurer, exasperated. "'As it is, I bet a dollar you've put your foot in it, my lady. I warned you of that blackguard. There, the mischief's done. We won't row over it. One moment.' He begged it with a wave of his hand, stood pondering briefly, fumbled for his watch, found and consulted it. It's the barest chance, he muttered. Perhaps we can make it. What are you going to do? asked the woman. Give Mr. Mulready a run for his money. Come along, Kirkwood. We haven't a minute. Mrs. Hallam, permit us. 
She stepped aside and he brushed past her to the door. Come, Kirkwood. He seemed to take Kirkwood's company for granted, and the young man was not inclined to argue the point. Meekly enough, he fell in with Calendar on the sidewalk. Mrs. Hallam followed them out. You won't forget, she called tentatively. I'll phone you if we find out anything. Calendar jerked the words unceremoniously over his shoulder as, linking arms with Kirkwood, he drew him swiftly along. They heard her shut the door. Instantly, Calendar stopped. Look here, did Dorothy have a... a small parcel with her? She had a Gladstone bag. Oh, the devil, the devil! Calendar started on again, muttering distractedly. As they reached the corner, he disengaged his arm. We've a minute and a half to reach Charing Cross Pier, and I think it's the last boat. You set the pace, will you? But remember, I'm an oldish man, and... and... fat. They began to run, the one easily, the other lumbering after like an old-fashioned square-rigged ship paced by a liner. Beneath the railway bridge, in front of the underground station, the cab rank cried them on with sardonic, view hellos and a bobby remarked them with suspicion turning to watch as they plunged round the corner and across the wide embankment the thames appeared before them a river of ink on whose burnished surface light swam in long winding streaks and oily blobs by the floating pier a county council steamboat strained its hawsers snoring huskily bells were jingling in her engine room as the two gained the head of the sloping gangway Kirkwood slapped a shilling down on the ticket window ledge. Where to? he cried back to Calendar. Cherry Gardens Pier, rasped the winded man. He stumbled after Kirkwood, groaning with exhaustion. Only the tolerance of the pier employees gained them their end. The steamer was held some seconds for them. As Calendar staggered to its deck, the gangway was jerked in, the last hawser cast off. The boat sheered wide out on the river then shot in, arrow-like, to the pier beneath Waterloo Bridge. The deck was crowded, and additional passengers embarked at every stop. In the circumstances conversation, save on the most impersonal topics, was impossible, and, even had it been necessary or advisable to discuss the affair which occupied their minds, where so many ears could hear, Calendar had breath enough neither to answer nor to catechize Kirkwood. They found seats on the forward deck, and rested there in grim silence, both fretting under the enforced restraint, while the boat darted, like some illuminated and exceptionally active water insect, from pier to pier. As it snorted beneath London Bridge, Calendar's impatience drove him from his seat back to the gangway. "'Next stop!' he told Kirkwood curtly, and rested his heavy bulk against the paddle-box, brooding morosely until, after an uninterrupted run of more than a mile, the steamer swept in, side-wheels backing water furiously against the ebbing tide, to Cherry Garden's Landing. Sweet name for a locality unsavory beyond credence. As they emerged on the street level and turned west on Vermonsey Wall, Kirkwood was fain to tug his topcoat over his chest and button it tight, to hide his linen. In a guarded tone, he counseled his companion to do likewise, and Calendar, after a moment's blank, uncomprehending stare, acknowledged the wisdom of the advice with a grunt. The very air they breathed was rank with fetid odors, bred of the gaunt, dark warehouses that lined their way. The lights were few, 
Beneath the looming buildings the shadows were many and dense. Here and there dreary and cheerless public houses appeared, with lighted windows conspicuous in the lightless waste. From time to time, as they hurried on, they encountered and made wide detours to escape contact with knots of wayfarers, men debased and begrimed, with dreary and slatternly women, arm in arm, zigzagging widely across the sidewalks, chorusing with sodden voices the burden of some popularized ballad. The cheapened sentimental refrains echoed sadly between benighted walls. Kirkwood shuddered, sticking close to Calendar's side. Life's naked brutalities had theretofore been largely out of his ken. He had heard of slums, had even ventured to mouth politely moral platitudes on the subject of overcrowding in great centers of population, but in the darkest flights of imagination had never pictured to himself anything so unspeakably foul and hopeless as this. And they were come hither seeking Dorothy Calendar. He was unable to conceive what manner of villainy could be directed against her, that she must be looked for in such surroundings. After some ten minutes' steady walking, Calendar turned aside with a muttered word and dived down a covered, dark and evil-smelling passageway that seemed to lead toward the river. Mastering his involuntary qualms, Kirkwood followed. Some ten or twelve paces from its entrance, the passageway swerved at a right angle continuing three yards or so to end in a blank wall, wherefrom a flickering, inadequate gas-lamp jutted. At this point a stone platform, perhaps four feet square, was discovered, from the edge of which a flight of worn and slimy stone steps led down to a permanent boat-landing, where another gas-light flared gustily, despite the protection of its frame of begrimed glass. "'Good Lord!' exclaimed the young man. "'What in heaven's name?' calendar bermondsey old stairs come on they descended to the landing stage beneath them the pool slept a sheet of polished ebony whispering to itself lapping with small stealthy gurgles angles of masonry and ancient piles on the farther bank tall warehouses reared square old-time heads their uncompromising rugged profile relieved here and there by tapering mastheads a few, scattering, feeble lights were visible. Nothing moved save the river and the wind. The landing itself they found quite deserted, something which the adventurer comprehended with a nod, which, like its accompanying inarticulate ejaculation, might have been taken to indicate either satisfaction or disgust. He ignored Kirkwood altogether, for the time being, and presently produced a small, bright object which, applied to his lips, proved to be a boatswain's whistle. He sounded two blasts, one long, one brief. There fell a lull, Kirkwood watching the other and wondering what next would happen. Calendar paced restlessly to and fro upon the narrow landing, now stopping to incline an ear to catch some anticipated sound, now searching, with sweeping glances, the black reaches of the pool. Finally, consulting his watch, almost ten, he announced. We're in time? Can't say. Damn, if that infernal boat would only show up. He was lifting the whistle to sound a second summons when a rowboat rounded a projecting angle formed by the next warehouse downstream, and with clanking oarlocks swung in toward the landing. On her thwarts, two figures, dipping and rising, labored with the sweeps. 
As they drew in, one man forward shipped his blades and, rising, scrambled to the bows in order to grasp an iron mooring ring set in the wall. The other awkwardly took in his oars and, as the current swung the stern downstream, placed a hand palm downward upon the bottom step to hold the boat steady. Callender waddled to the brink of the stage, grunting with relief. "'The other man?' he asked brusquely. "'Has he gone aboard? Or is this the first trip to-night?' One of the watermen nodded assent to the latter question, adding gruffly, "'Seen nothing of him, sir.' "'Very good,' said Callender, as if he doubted whether it were very good or bad. "'We'll wait a bit.' "'Right o,' agreed the waterman civilly. Callender turned back, his small eyes glimmering with satisfaction. Fumbling in one coat pocket, he brought to light a cigar case. "'Have a smoke?' he suggested, with a show of friendliness. "'By heaven, I was beginning to get worried.' "'As to what?' inquired Kirkwood pointedly, selecting a cigar. He got no immediate reply, but felt Callender's sharp eyes upon him while he maneuvered with matches for a light. "'That's so,' it came at length. "'You don't know. I kind of forgot for a minute.' Somehow you seemed on the inside. Kirkwood laughed lightly. I've experienced something of the same sensation in the past few hours. Don't doubt it. Calendar was watching him narrowly. I suppose. He put it to him abruptly. You haven't changed your mind. Changed my mind? About coming in with me. My dear sir, I can have no mind to change until a plain proposition is laid before me. Hmm. Callender puffed vigorously until it occurred to him to change the subject. "'You won't mind telling me what happened to you and Dorothy?' "'Certainly not.' Callender drew nearer, and Kirkwood, lowering his voice, narrated briefly the events since he had left the Pless in Dorothy's company. Her father followed him intently, interrupting now and again with exclamation or pertinent question as had kirkwood been able to see the face of the man in number nine frognall street the negative answer seemed to disconcert him youngster you say blam if i can lay my mind to him now if that mulready it would have been impossible for mulready whoever he is to recover and get to craven street before we did kirkwood pointed out well go on but when the tale was told it's that scoundrel mulready the man affirmed with heat. It's his hand. I know him. I might have had sense enough to see he'd taken the first chance to hand me the double-cross. Well, this does for him all right. Callender lowered viciously at the river. You've been blame useful, he told Kirkwood assertively. If it hadn't been for you, I don't know where I'd be now. Nor Dorothy either. An obvious afterthought. There's no particular way I can show my appreciation. I suppose money i've got enough to last me till i reach new york thank you well if the time ever comes just shout for george b i won't be wanting i only wish you were with us but that's out of the question doubtless no two ways about it i bet anything you've got a conscience concealed about your person what you're an honest man eh i don't want to sound immodest returned kirkwood amused you don't need to worry about that, but an honest man's got no business in my line. He glanced again at his watch. Damn that Mulready! I wonder if he was cute enough to take another way, 
or did he think the fool he cut off abruptly seeming depressed by the thought that he might have been outwitted and clasping hands behind his back chewed savagely on his cigar watching the river kirkwood found himself somewhat wearied the uselessness of his presence there struck him with added force he bethought him of his boat train scheduled to leave a station miles distant in an hour and a half if he missed it he would be stranded in a foreign land penniless and practically without friends brentwick being away and all the rest of his circle of acquaintances on the other side of the channel yet he lingered in poor company daring fate that he might see the end of the affair why there was only one honest answer to that question he stayed on because of his interest in a girl whom he had known for a matter of three hours, at most. It was insensate folly on his part, ridiculous from any point of view. But he made no move to go. The slow minutes lengthened monotonously. There came a sound from the street level. Calendar held up a hand of warning. Here they come. Steady, he said tensely. Kirkwood, listening intently, interpreted the noise as a clash of hooves upon cobbles. Calendar turned to the boat. "'Sheer off,' he ordered. "'Drop out of sight. I'll whistle when I want you.' "'Aye, aye, sir.' The boat slipped noiselessly away with the current and in an instant was lost to sight. Calendar plucked at Kirkwood's sleeve, drawing him into the shadow of the steps. "'E-easy,' he whispered. "'And I say, lend me a hand, will you, if Mulready turns ugly?' "'Oh, yes,' asserted Kirkwood, with a nonchalance not entirely unassumed. The racket drew nearer and ceased. The hush that fell thereafter seemed only accentuated by the purling of the river. It was ended by footsteps echoing in the covered passageway. Calendar craned his thick neck round the shoulder of stone, reconnoitering the landing and stairway. "'Thank God,' he said under his breath. "'I was right after all.' A man's deep tones broke out above. "'This way. Mind the steps. They're a bit slippery, Miss Dorothy.' "'But my father,' came the girl's voice, attuned to doubt. "'Oh, he'll be along, if he isn't waiting now, in the boat.' They descended, the man leading. At the foot, without a glance to the right or left, he advanced to the edge of the stage, leaning out over the rail as if endeavoring to locate the rowboat. At once the girl appeared, moving to his side. "'But, Mr. Mulready—' The girl's words were drowned by a prolonged blast on the boatswain's whistle at her companion's lips. The shorter one followed in due course. Calendar edged forward from Kirkwood's side. "'But what shall we do if my father isn't here?' Wait? No, best not to. Best to get on the Alethea as soon as possible, Miss Calendar. We can send the boat back. Once aboard, the lugger, the girl is mine, eh, Mulready? To say nothing of the loot. If Calendar's words were jocular, his tone conveyed a different impression entirely. Both man and girl wheeled right about to face him, the one with a strangled oath, the other with a low cry. The devil! exclaimed this Mr. Mulready. "'Oh, my father!' the girl voiced her recognition of him. "'Not precisely one and the same person,' commented Calendar suavely. "'But, uh, thanks just as much. "'You see, Mulready, when I make an appointment, I keep it.' 
We've begun to get a bit anxious about you, Mulready began defensively. So I surmised, from what Mrs. Hallam and Mr. Kirkwood told me. Well? The man found no ready answer. He fell back a pace to the railing, his features working with his deep chagrin. The murky flare of the gas-lamp overhead fell across a face handsome beyond the ordinary, but marred by a sullen humor and seamed with indulgence, a face that seemed hauntingly familiar until Kirkwood, in a flash of visual memory, reconstructed the portrait of a man who lingered over a dining-table with two empty chairs for company. This, then, was he whom Mrs. Hallam had left at the Pless, a tall, strong man, very heavy about the chest and shoulders. "'Why, my dear friend,' Calendar was taunting him, "'you don't seem overjoyed to see me, for all your wild anxiety. "'Pon my word, you act as if you hadn't expected me, "'and our engagement so clearly understood at that. "'Why, you fool!' Here the mask of irony was cast. "'Did you think for a moment I let myself be nabbed "'by that yap from Scotland Yard? "'Were you banking on that? "'I give you my faith I ambled out under his very nose.' "'Dorothy, my dear,' turning impatiently from Mulready. "'Where's that bag?' The girl withdrew a puzzled gaze from Mulready's face. It was apparent to Kirkwood that this phase of the affair was no more enigmatic to him than to her, and drew aside a corner of her cloak, disclosing the gladstone bag securely grasped in one gloved hand. "'I have it, thanks to Mr. Kirkwood,' she said quietly." Kirkwood chose that moment to advance from the shadow. Mulready started and fixed him with a troubled and unfriendly stare. The girl greeted him with a note of sincere pleasure in her surprise. "'Why, Mr. Kirkwood! But I left you at Mrs. Hallam's!' Kirkwood bowed, smiled openly at Mulready's discomfiture. "'By your father's grace, I came with him,' he said. "'You ran away without saying good-night, you know, and I'm a jealous creditor.' She laughed excitedly, turning to Calendar. "'But you were to meet me at Mrs. Hallam's.' "'Mulready was good enough to try to save me the trouble, my dear. He's an unselfish soul, Mulready. Fortunately, it happened that I came along not five minutes after he'd carried you off. "'How was that, Dorothy?' Her glance wavered uneasily between the two, Mulready and her father. The former, shrugging to declare his indifference, turned his back squarely upon them. She frowned. He came out of Mrs. Hallam's and got into the four-wheeler, saying you had sent him to take your place, and would join us on the Alethea. So, how about it, Mulready? The man swung back slowly. What you choose to think, he said, after a deliberate pause. Well, never mind. We'll go over the matter at our leisure on the Alethea. There was in the adventurer's tone a menace, bitter and not to be ignored, which Mulready saw fit to challenge. "'I think not,' he declared. "'I think not. I'm weary of your addle-pated suspicions. It would be plain to anyone but a fool that I acted for the best interests of all concerned in this matter. If you're not content to see it in that light, I'm done.' "'Oh, if you want to put it that way, I'm not content, Mr. Mulready,' retorted Calendar dangerously. "'Please yourself. I bid you good evening and good-bye.' The man took a step toward the stairs. Calendar dropped his right hand into his top coat pocket. "'Just a minute,' he said sweetly. 
and Mulready stopped. Abruptly, the fat adventurer's smoldering resentment leaped in flame. "'That'll be about all, Mr. Mulready. Bout face, you hound, and get into that boat. Do you think I'll temporize with you till doomsday? Then forget it. You're wrong. Dead wrong. Your bluff's called, and, with an evil chuckle, I hold a full house, Mulready. Every chamber taken.' He lifted meaningly the hand in the coat pocket. "'Now, in with you!' With a grin and a swagger of pure bravado, Mulready turned and obeyed. Unnoticed of any, save perhaps Calendar himself, the boat had drawn in at the stage a moment earlier. Mulready dropped into it and threw himself sullenly upon the midship's thwart. "'Now, Dorothy, in you go, my dear,' continued Calendar, with a self-satisfied wag of his head. Half-dazed, to all seeming, she moved toward the boat. With clumsy and assertive gallantry, her father stepped before her, offering his hand, his hand which she did not touch, for in the act of descending she remembered and swung impulsively back to Kirkwood. "'Good night, Mr. Kirkwood. Good night. I shan't forget.' He took her hand and bowed above it but when his head was lifted he still retained her fingers in a lingering clasp. "'Good night,' he said reluctantly. The crass incongruity of her in that setting smote him with renewed force. Young, beautiful, dainty, brilliant, and graceful, in her pretty evening gown, she figured strangely against the gloomy background of the river, in those dull and mean surroundings of dank stone and rusted iron. She was like he thought extravagantly, a whiff of flower fragrance lost in the miasmatic vapors of a slough. The innocent appeal and allure of her face, upturned to his beneath the gaslight, wrought compassionately upon his sensitive and generous heart. He was aware of a little surge of blind rage against the conditions that had brought her to that spot, and against those whom he held responsible for those conditions. In a sudden flush of daring, he turned and nodded coolly to Calendar. "'With your permission,' he said negligently, and drew the girl aside to the angle of the stairway. "'Miss Calendar,' he began, but was interrupted. "'Here, I say!' Calendar had started toward him, angrily. Kirkwood calmly waved him back. "'I want a word in private with your daughter, Mr. Calendar,' he announced with quiet dignity. "'I don't think you'll deny me.' I'd saved you some slight trouble tonight. Disgruntled, the adventurer paused. Oh, all right, he grumbled. I don't see what... He returned to the boat. Forgive me, Miss Calendar, continued Kirkwood nervously. I know I've no right to interfere, but... Yes, Mr. Kirkwood? But hasn't this gone far enough? He floundered unhappily. I can't like the look of things. Are you sure, sure that it's all right? "'With you, I mean?' She did not answer at once, but her eyes were kind and sympathetic. He plucked heart of their tolerance. "'It isn't too late yet,' he argued. "'Let me take you to your friends. You must have friends in the city. But this, this midnight flight down the Thames, this atmosphere of stealth and suspicion, this—' "'But my place is with my father, Mr. Kirkwood,' she interposed. "'I dared doubt him. Dare I?' I suppose not. So I must go with him. I'm glad. Thank you for caring, dear Mr. Kirkwood. And again, good night. 
"'Good luck attend you,' he muttered, following her to the boat. Callender helped her in, and turned back to Kirkwood with a look of arch triumph. Kirkwood wondered if he had overheard. Whether or no, he could afford to be magnanimous. Seizing Kirkwood's hand, he pumped it vigorously. "'My dear boy, you've been an angel in disguise, and I guess you think me the devil in masquerade.' He chuckled, in high conceit with himself over the turn of affairs. "'Good night, and—and fare thee well.' He dropped into the boat, seating himself to face the recalcitrant Mulready. "'Cast off there!' The boat dropped away, the oars lifting and falling. With a weariful sense of loneliness and disappointment, Kirkwood hung over the rail to watch them out of sight. A dozen feet of water lay between the stage and the boat. The girl's dress remained a spot of cheerful color. Her face was a blur. As the watermen swung the bows downstream, she looked back lifting an arm spectral in its white sheath. Kirkwood raised his hat. The boat gathered impetus, momentarily diminishing in the night's illusory perspective. Presently it was little more than a fugitive blot, gliding swiftly in midstream. And then it was gone entirely, engulfed by the obliterating darkness. Somewhat wearily the young man released the railing and ascended the stairs. And that is the end, he told himself struggling with an acute sense of personal injury. He had been hardly used. For a few hours his life had been lightened by the ineffable glamour of romance. Mystery and adventure had engaged him. Exorcising for the time the shade of care, he had served a fair woman and been associated with men whose ways, however questionable, were the ways of courage, hedged thickly about with perils. All that was at an end. Prosaic and workaday tomorrows confronted him in endless and dreary perspective, and he felt again upon his shoulder the bony hand of his familiar. Care. He sighed. Ah, well. Disconsolate and aggrieved, he gained the street. He was miles from St. Pancras, foot-weary, to all intents and purposes, lost. In this extremity chance smiled upon him. The cabby, who, at his initial instance, had traveled this weary way from Quadrant Mews, after the manner of his kind, ere turned back, had sought surcease of fatigue at the nearest public. From afar Kirkwood saw the four-wheeler at the curb, and made all haste toward it. Entering the gin-mill, he found the cabby, soothed him with bitter, and, instructing him for St. Pancras with all speed, dropped, limp and listless with fatigue, into the conveyance. As it moved, he closed his eyes. The face of Dorothy Callender shone out from the blank wall of his consciousness, like an illuminated picture, cast upon a screen. She smiled upon him, her head high, her eyes tender and trustful, and he thought that her scarlet lips were sweet with promise and her glance abrim with such a light as he had never dreamed to know. And now that he knew it, and desired it, it was too late. An hour gone he might, by a nod of his head, have cast his fortunes with hers for weal or woe. But now, alas and alack-a-day, that romance was no more. End of chapter 6 Recording by William Tomko